Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to look into your words. Father, I pray that this will not just be a preaching moment, but it will also be a time whereby you speak to us in a very personal way. Father, let your words change us. Let your words still our hearts. Let our word, your words draw us to the living Christ so that we may find joy and rest in him. In Jesus' name, Amen. There once was an emperor in China named Qin Shi Wang. He became the emperor of China at a very young age of 13 years old. He reigned until he was 39 years old and he was the first emperor to unite China together after China has been split into seven nations. He joined them all together as one. He was one of the most successful emperors of China. But he had a fear. He had a fear of death. Ever since he became an emperor at age 13, he had uh, a whole city of people to, to do one thing for him, and that's to build a mausoleum for him, a graveyard for him. This was no ordinary mausoleum. This was a city that was built underneath the ground, and this was supposed to be a huge city, and you can still uh, uh, find this in the remote areas of Xi'an in China. The city underneath the ground was supposed to resemble the nation of China. There would be a huge palace whereby he would be buried in. There would be thousands of warriors that will guard the city. There would be lakes and oceans made out of mercury. Why mercury? The king was very afraid that people would come to rob his grave. So mercury is supposed to keep them away because it, was, it is poisonous. It would have pearls placed on the ceilings of the, of the roof uh, to signify stars. And he would have lights made up of a type of animal oil that could burn for years and years and years. In the palace itself, he would have all kinds of treasures that would be buried with him. And the emperor, who does not like to be lonely, wanted all the concubines, all his concubines who did not bear him any sons to be buried alive with him when he died. And this underground city or tomb took 26 years to build. And a whole city of people was involved building this project. The king promised eternal wealth to anyone who helped him. And so when the king died at age 39, most likely of mercury poisoning because he was obsessed with mercury, Everyone who worked in the underground tomb was invited to the funeral procession. The emperor's body was placed in the most inner parts of the, of the palace and it was sealed. And just as the workers were about to leave after the funeral procession was over, the gates of the city closed. All the workers were buried alive with the king. Why? The king did not want any of the workers to go around telling others how to get into the tomb and what was inside the tomb. So more than 2,000 years later, if you go to Sion, the tomb is still buried underground. It's underneath a very small hill that has yet to be excavated. When I read the story, I begin to ask myself how I would feel if I were one of, you, one of the workers if I spent 26 years of my life working on a project only to end up in doom, how would you feel? After you invested so much of your time, energy, talent, intelligence on a project that finally turned around against you and lead to doom. 
I know of a school teacher who spent years and years investing in his students and in the school curriculum only when the school had to cut down its staff members he was one of the first to let go or you can invest so much in a person that you have discipled mentor for so many years but after that all those years of effort he or she turns around and begins to spread gossip and criticisms about you how would you feel if you feel that your life is a failure Ezra must have felt the same way. Ezra received some huge calling from God in Ezra chapter 7, whereby he was called out, where epithets were thrown at him. He was called out to be one of the great teachers, reformer of Israel. But when we come to Ezra chapter 8, Ezra knew the problems were ahead. He was supposed to bring these group of Jews back to Jerusalem and knew that problems was ahead because it was dangerous to travel, they could be walking into their own death. And Ezra tells us how vulnerable they are in Ezra chapter 8. And they could be easily attacked along the way. And everything that Ezra had built could have come to a short abrupt end at the hands of bandits. So chapter 8 is one of the most dangerous passages uh, in, in the book of Ezra. They were journeying back. And as they were journeying back, Ezra knew and was weighing heavy how uh, dangerous the trip was. So when they reached a place called the Hava River, they decided to stop there for three days. And when they would stop there for three days, Ezra did three things. And they seemed quite strange to us. We're going to look just at the first two events that happened at the Hava River. The first event seems quite strange. Ezra knew there was problems ahead. But instead of trying to solve problems, instead of trying to recruit armies or bodyguards that will help them so that they would fend off the bandits and the thieves, what Ezra did was something quite peculiar. Instead of looking for bodyguards and soldiers to protect them, Ezra begins to look for Levites, priests. What on earth is happening? And the second event is a little bit less strange because Ezra knew that he has come to its wits end. He, being a scribe and a teacher of the law, did not know how to protect, how to manage such a large group of people. So he decided to call a fast and they prayed. And it's one of the most heartfelt prayers, especially in chapter 8 verse 22, when Ezra bears out his soul before God. I was ashamed, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 22. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from his enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him. His great anger is against all who forsake him. Ezra begins to bite his own tongue right now. Perhaps he's spoken too early. Perhaps he should have asked the king for protection. But in this passage of these two events that have been happening here on the way back to Jerusalem, I want to pause and study and take a look at what's happening. Why is it that Ezra started looking for Levites in the midst of danger? And what is all this prayer about? So let's, uh, 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 um, and so let's uh, look at this passage in Ezra chapter 8. We are looking at verses 15 to 20. 
And I believe this passage has so much to say to us, especially for those of us who are at the thralls of, of uh, feeling that our lives is about to march into failure. We begin, to we begin to pause and try to understand what is God saying to us now? What, what can you do during these times whereby you feel like a failure? The two things that Astra did that we can learn from the very first thing in the midst of this very difficult time in Ezra's life where failure was in front of him, the first thing that Ezra did was he count his blessings. When Ezra felt that failure was in his doorstep, instead of panicking, instead of asking for more bodyguards, instead of searching for more soldiers to protect for them, protect them, Ezra remembered the scriptures. Ezra remembered the book of Joshua. Because the journey of Ezra is very much like the Exodus. You see, the, the Ezra left, left Babylon on the first day of the first month of the year. It was also the very day whereby Israel left Egypt. And you look very closely at the book of Ezra, just before Israel and Joshua came, uh, came to the promised land and entered the promised land, they also stopped. They also stopped for three days, just as Ezra stopped for three days at the Hava River, where did Joshua and the Israelites stop as they were coming out of uh, uh, Egypt into the Promised Land? They stopped at the River Jordan. They also camped there for three days before crossing the river and into the Promised Land. And just as the Levites was very important to Ezra, uh, to, to Joshua, because the Levites carried the Ark of the Covenant. And what did they do when they were faced with this an impassable river called the River Jordan that was moving very, the waters was moving quickly, it was high tide. What did Joshua do? Instead of finding more soldiers, instead of finding more equipment to cross this river, Joshua got the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant and as soon as the Levites stepped into the waters of the River Jordan, the river, the waters stopped begin to pile up and it begins to have a way open for the entire nation to walk right through. Now I think Ezra must have been thinking about the book of Joshua, especially chapter 3 and 4, in the midst of his difficulty. They were too at the river. They were too at, and camping there for three days. And so what did Ezra do? Being a man of God's word, he remembered the book of Joshua. The very first thing is to seek God for help. So he, like Joshua, began recruiting Levites. And so we read in Ezra chapter 8 verse 15, when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Verse 16, so I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarub, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Mashulam, who were leaders, and Jorab, and now Nathan, who were men of learning, and I ordered them to go to Edu, the leader in Kashifia. And I told them to say to Edu and the fellow Levites, um, the temple servants in Kashia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. It's very interesting, instead of looking for more soldiers and bodyguards, Ezra looked for more Levites. He got a small contingent of nine individuals to go with him. 
And then, so I was reading those names of the nine individuals. What stands out? The word Nathan. Nathan stands out. The word Nathan or El Nathan is repeated many times across this list. El Nathan is repeated three times. And the word Nathan appears once. And, and, and why? Why is this the word repeated? The word Nathan simply means gift. El Nathan simply means God gives. While Ezra was searching for the Levites, God was already giving Ezra strength. And that is why we read later on in the next verse, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah, sons and, and, and brothers, 18 in all. While Ezra was trying to do God's work, trying to be like Joshua, bringing God's people perhaps to pray with him, perhaps to give him faith, perhaps to, to, to encourage him, perhaps to fast together. God's hand was already at work. The Bible says God's gracious hand was already at work. And even the names of the people that went with him was spelling out that God was at work. God gave, God gave, God gave. And then in verse 17, the gracious hand of God was on us. What does this have to say to us? When we feel that our world is overwhelming, that there's failure in front, there's danger ahead, honor God. That's what, that's what, that's what Ezra did. All he remembered was the scriptures and how to honor God, how to recruit more of God's people so that they could pray with him to help him. And as you try to honor God, God sends His blessings. God helps us in the process. So when you feel that the, 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 the journey ahead is so tough, so uncrossable like the River Jordan, God is already at work. Count your blessings. Look for God's help. As, as Ezra was trying to get help, God was already giving help. God gave, God gave, God gave. The gracious hand of God was given. Let's look for God's help. When the Augustine was a, was a young man, he was always privileged to have a teenage son to also loved the Lord. But in God's providence, his son was removed, died, when the, the son was only 17 years of age. But instead of always feeling angry and bitter at God for the tragedy that God had brought upon Augustine's life, Augustine was always very grateful to his son, uh, grateful to God for his son. He was always counting God's blessings through the lives of his son. You see, Augustine loved his son very much, and together they even wrote a book together. They even co-authored a book together. The son was only 16 years of age. He came to know Christ when he was 15, was baptized by the Bishop Ambrose, just like Augustine was also baptized by the Bishop Ambrose. Uh, and, uh, and the both father and son even wrote a book called The Teacher together. And was such precious memories. But a year after the book was released, God removed the son and the son passed away. 
Instead of being angry and bitter to God, Augustine always remembers God's blessings through his son's lives and are always thankful to God. When Augustine wrote his book, The Confession, he gave thanks to God. He recounted God's blessings as seen in his son when he writes, I learned for myself that he, my son, had many other talents more remarkable than this than just writing. His intelligence left me spellbound. And who but you, God, could work such wonders? Instead of being bitter to God, he was always thankful to God for the small blessings of how God worked through the talents of his son, through the intelligence of his son. He was always marvel at how God worked. So when you feel that trouble is ahead, when you feel that failure is right in front of you, do not be afraid you can still cross over your Jordan or your river Havana, Hava. Because God is constantly at work. Secondly, God is not limited by human resources. God is not hum- limited by human resources. There is a huge difference between Joshua's time and Ezra's. When Joshua and the Israelite faced the river Jordan, they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. They had the Levites, sure, but it was the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant and when they stepped into the waters of the river Jordan, the river at the one side started to pile up so that they could walk across. They had the Ark of God, which is a representation of God's presence. At least they had that. But not Ezra. By the time of Ezra, the ark had long disappeared. There was no symbolic presence of God with them. So we read in verse 21 that there by the Hava River, I proclaim a fast so that I could, we could humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a save, or more precisely, a straight journey for us and for our children and our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we told the king the gracious hand of our God is, is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Ezra knew that the ark was not with them anymore but Ezra knew that God was with them. Though they may not have the ark but God is not limited by the ark. So that's why Ezra called a fast and that's why they prayed. God doesn't need the ark to help his people. God only needs his people to pray for him, to pray to him. Even if you read Joshua chapter 4 very carefully, it's not the ark that's somehow magical. What is so powerful about Joshua 3 and 4 as the, uh, as the people of, of Israel uh, cross over the Jordan? as the river piles up and, and, and made a way for them to cross the river. What was so powerful it was not because there was anything magical about the ark. Joshua makes that very clear. What was it? Joshua chapter 4 verse 24 tells us what was behind this miracle. He did all this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of God is powerful so that you will fear the Lord your God. Ezra makes it very clear. There is nothing magical about the ark. The reason why it was so powerful was because the hand of God was on the ark. And let's look here at verse 22 in Ezra chapter 8. 
What was so powerful in the midst of Ezra praying to God? The gracious hand of God. Repeated three times in, Joshua, in Ezra chapter 8. Repeated three times. Why? To remind us that what gives greatness to God, what causes the miracle of God helping us, is not because of a superstitious object, but because the hand of God was behind it. It was the hand of God. Even without the resources, God's hand was still at work and helping the people. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hands and I've lost them. All but whatever I have placed in God's hands, I can still possess because God's hand was at work. Even without the ark. You may think that, oh, failure is right in front of me. Difficulties are right in front of me. But God is not restricted by our limitations. We may not have anything with us, but we have the hand of God and that is enough. And that's why Ezra prayed, even though they did not have the ark. Because the gracious hand of God is at work. It was Christmas 1939. Great Britain was at war with the Nazi Germany at this time. The people in Great Britain was in very antsy about what would happen in the future. Christmas that year was doom and gloomy. And not many people were celebrating with joy because they were afraid of what would happen. And like his father before him, King George VI continued the holiday tradition whereby he would speak to the entire British Empire through a radio message. He would have that broadcast to all uh, over Britain and um, people would hear him speak and give encouragement over Christmas. You need to understand King George VI was not a man who was good at public speaking. There was even a movie made out of this called The King's Speech which deals with his uh, 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 speech problem that he had. And uh, King George had a huge stuttering problem. He never wanted to be king. He was never supposed to be king. He never enjoyed being king. And he was forced in many ways to become king. And later that year, later the next year, he would also suffer from cancer, which would eventually take his life. But it was December 25th, 1939, the day of the broadcast, was dressed in his uh, uniform as a king. He was tall and thin as he approached the table whereby he would, there was two radio microphones being set up where uh, his uh, speech would be recorded. And taking a few deep breaths, he began to speak slowly but solidly. Measuring his words carefully, he spoke from his heart. He says, a new year is at hand. We cannot tell what it will bring. If it brings peace, how thankful we shall be of it. If it brings our continued struggle, we shall remain undaunted. Towards the end of his nine-minute uh, broadcast, he said, I feel that we, we may all find a message of encouragement in lines which, in my closing words, I would like to say to you. So he begins to read a poem that his 13-year-old daughter had given him. And he ends the speech with this beautiful story. He says, I see. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the new year. I said to him, give me light that I might thread safely into the unknown. And the man who was guarding the gate replied, 
Go out into the darkness, but put your hand in the hand of God that will be better than light and safer than the known way. And he encouraged the people of his nation in the midst of war, in the midst of famine, in the midst of unemployment, in the midst of doom, in the midst of gloom, in the midst of trouble and failure coming ahead. He began to say to the people, may the Lord Almighty guide you and uphold you. And after this point, no one knew whether the Allies would win. No one knew that Britain would have to face war for five more years, that they had to endure brutal bombing, that Hitler will be of a, a, such a cruel and a, a, a mighty force before he was finally decimated. But yet in the midst of such shaky times, there was one message that the king gave to his people, and that is to put your hand into the hand of God. That will be even better than light. That's safer than the known way. And today my message to you is also the same. The message of Ezra for us today. The message that God has for us today is the same. In the midst of all the darkness, as you go out into the darkness, put your hand in the hand of God, which will be better than light and safer than the known way. So may we place our hands in the gracious hand of God. That's what Ezra did. Place his hand. And that will be safer than a known way. And better than light. Father, we come to you and we thank you. In the midst of our uncertain times. In the midst of our fears and our failures. In the midst whereby we may face difficult tasks. It's not an art that will save us, not an object or superstitious thing that will save us, but it's the hand of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who reaches out His crucified hands to hold us in His hands. So Father, as we come before you this morning, as we pour our hearts again before you, Father, we give you our hands. The hands of the gracious hand of God that helped Ezra three times in this very difficult journey in his ministry. So Father, I pray that the gracious hand of God may be what save us at this time. Hold our hands, Lord God. Hold our hands. Father, travel with us. May your hand travel with us. And even as we walk through a difficult, impossible Jordan, Father, we want only one thing. That's to hold your hand. Travel with us. Hold us by your hands. Because without you holding us, we will fall and we will bruise ourselves. Without you holding us, we will be lost for all directions. Without you holding our hands, things will get difficult and we will get discouraged and burn out. But so hold our hands. Father, even in our midst of our limitations, hold our hands.